you have your Bibles, take them out and turn with me to Mark, the Gospel of Mark. We'll look at the first eight verses this morning. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a, a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Thank you. You could be seated and um, let's pray and then, and then we'll get started. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks. We're thankful for you, for your word that points us to your son, Jesus. Most of all, we are thankful for him and for his gospel. We're thankful that we have good news to proclaim from this place, good news that we've already sung about. And that good news is that Jesus, you have come to die in the place for sinners like us. You have brought the Holy Spirit, you baptize, pour out your spirit upon us, Lord, so that we can experience your presence here and now. And so that we can experience you in the future in heaven for all of eternity. Jesus, help us to do what John the Baptist does here, and that's to point ourselves to you. May we see you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Well, um, if you are visiting with us this morning at the Point Community Church, you've picked a fantastic Sunday, as if there wouldn't be, as, as if there would be a bad Sunday to uh, join us. And the reason is, is because we're, like I said, we're getting started in a new book of the Bible. And so what we do here at the Point Community Church um, for the sermon time, is part of the meat and potatoes of what we do is we just work our way through a book of the Bible. So last year we were in the book of Hebrews and then we spent a short time um, in Second Chronicles. And then we talked about prayer. And now we find ourselves in Mark chapter one, verse one. And um, even though Mark is the shortest of all of the gospel accounts, it will take us pretty much the entire year to get through it. And so what better place than to be around, than to be around the, the person, the work, the ministry, the life of Jesus. And so that's where we'll find ourselves. And so as we get started there, let me give you just a few things about um, Mark. Now, if um, we, we mentioned it, I think last week, but um, on the Amazons, you can grab one of these little scripture journals. So these are the ESV um, scripture journal um, for the book of Mark. And so this just contains the book of Mark. And then there's a place in there for you to take notes. And so there'll be notes up on the screen. Um, certainly not everything that I'm going to say noteworthy will be on the screen, but some of what I may say that may be noteworthy um, will be on the screen and some other things you may want to write down. So if you're writing down, write this down. Number one is, like I said, it's the shortest of all the gospels. And so um, there's, you know, you got the, the four gospel accounts are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Mark is the shortest with only 16 chapters. Um, but here's the deal. It's the first one to be written. Um, Mark's is the first gospel account being written. So think about this. What I just read to you was some of the first words ever written about Jesus. Like, like think about that, you know, 2,000 plus years ago, these were the first words 
ever written about Jesus right here. Now there's other gospel or other New Testament books that we believe to be older than Mark, like Galatians was probably one of the first ones to be written, James, but then it's probably that way, Galatians, James, and then Mark being written. But it's the first gospel account um, to be written. It's unique in its style. It's a little bit different. And, and, and as you're reading through your Bible plan and you read through Matthew and then you get to Mark, you may not pick up on that. You may not um, pick up on the uniqueness, but it is unique. Being kind of uh, um, all put in together, like in 16 um, chapters, there's things that Mark will leave out that other gospel writers will add in. So for example, there's nothing about the birth story of Jesus. There's nothing about Bethlehem. There's nothing about Mary, Joseph. There's nothing about Elizabeth, Zachariah. None of those people show up. I mean, he starts off with the ministry of, of, um, of John the Baptist. He starts off with Jesus at probably age 30. He skips the first 30 years. And as we read John, like he continues in that pattern. John's style, I mean, I'm sorry, Mark, excuse me. As we read through Mark, um, we see this style. It's kind of like, um, have you ever watched a movie and a director will use what's called a jump cut? That's where like they'll go from scene to scene to scene. Like I was trying to think of a, a jump cut. I should have probably asked Clint what a good movie that it, it employs jump cuts, but it's where it's almost like they're, they're interrupted. Or instead of maybe you could think about like, Think about it like this, instead of it playing out like a movie, it almost plays out more like a, like a slideshow, right? Like, like have you ever watched like a, someone give a slideshow presentation? Like Luann and I, we traveled out West um, this year and we took a bunch of pictures and then we put together a slideshow. And so our friends and our family, they had to suffer through our slideshow. And so we'd invite people into our home and be like, and this is us at the Grand Canyon. And this is us at National, you know, Arches National Park. And this is us. And then we would tell the story with each slide. And that's kind of the way that Mark uses it. Mark loves, like he, it's fast paced. He loves action. In fact, Mark will employ the word that we translate in the English of immediately. He will use that word 35 times throughout these 16 chapters. So it becomes a theme immediately this, immediately that there's that. It's almost as if Mark has um, ADHD. Um, and, and I say that because it's part of the charm of the book of Mark as someone with ADHD. Because what he'll do oftentimes is Mark will begin a story and then he'll interrupt that story with a different story only to go back and to finish the last story. In fact, Mark uses this so much that it becomes part of the writing style of the book of Mark and scholars call that, they call it um, interpolation or we will use it like this. It's a Mark and sandwich is what it's called. So Mark being the, the writer of it, it's a, it's a Mark and sandwich and the Mark and sandwich looks like this. And this is for you theology nerds out there or literary nerds, it looks like this. It's like A1 will be the first story. And then there's B that will come in that doesn't seem like it fits what they want. Like I said, it comes as almost an interruption. Like, what are you talking about now? But then guess what he'll do? Come back and go to A2. He'll oftentimes pick up with that story from A1. But here's how this Mark and Sandwich works is B becomes the, the theological component that helps you to, that ties everything together. So it's not like he's just interrupting himself, but, but there's, a, there's a purpose behind this. It's a literary device that he's employing to make a point. And the point is often a theological point that he's making. In fact, the entire gospel account, his whole book works like one of these Markin sandwiches. Like look at how he begins in verse number one, the beginning of the gospel and then what is that gospel? Well, he goes on to tell us the gospel of, he says, Jesus Christ, the son of God. 
And so there's the A1 piece, the assertion that he's making is this, that Jesus Christ, now Christ isn't his last name, Christ is his title, it's who he is. He's the anointed one, he's the Messiah. But here's the assertion that Jesus the Messiah was the son of God. And so that's A1. The rest of the, pretty much the rest of the book is him laying out how do we know that he's the son of God? And so Mark will go into a lot of the stories of the miracles, a lot of the stories of, of Jesus's power and Jesus's authority, less about Jesus's teaching, like Mark in his gospel account, he really focuses in on Jesus's teaching. Mark will come in and he'll talk about Jesus's works and Jesus's act, all showing to prove him to be the son of God. And then at the very end, well, almost the very end, the end of Jesus's life, like the last words possibly that Jesus hears from the cross in uh, Mark chapter 13 is the voice of a Roman centurion who says this, surely this was the son of God. And see how that works? A one, he is the son of God. That's the assertion. The rest of the book works out B of him showing and proving how do we know this is the son of God because he's doing what no ordinary man could do and then it ends at Jesus's own death. Now, again, he'll be resurrected and ascended. Mark will cover his resurrection. You know, he'll cover that part. But at the end of Jesus's life with this Roman centurion making the same assertion that surely this is the son of God. Now, moving on, who is Mark? Like, who is this person named Mark that the, that the gospel account takes his name from? Well, Mark is not one of the original 12 um, disciples who become the apostles. Well, 11 of the 12 become the apostles. He's, he's different. He's, he, he's not there. So, so where does he get his information? If he's not one of those original 12 people that are following Jesus around, watching Jesus, writing down what, everything that Jesus does, then where did Mark get his um, information? Well, Mark is short for John Mark. That's his full name, John Mark is his full name. He's mentioned nine times in the New Testament. He's the cousin of a guy by the name of Barnabas, who's called the encourager in the Bible. John, Mark, and Barnabas, they, they join up with the apostle Paul in the book of Acts, and they accompany Paul on what's called his first missionary journey. And so Paul has, is burdened and he's sent out from the church at Antioch and he's gonna go and he's gonna share the gospel to places where the gospel has not been taken. He takes his small missionary band with him. Two of the people are Barnabas and his cousin, John Mark, that join him. And then while they're on this missionary journey, they get tangled up. Paul and Barnabas and John Mark, they kind of uh, get tangled up and they decide to go their separate ways. I mean, it's kind of a sad truth, but even mature godly Christians sometimes can get tangled up. And so they get tangled up and Barnabas and John, I mean, Barnabas and Mark go back and then Paul continues the, the journey on. And so as Mark goes back, he joins up with the apostle Peter. He joins up with Peter. In fact, in Peter, he writes two books of the Bible. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, he refers to Mark as my son. And so Paul has a son in the ministry. His name is Timothy. And so does Peter. Peter has a son in the ministry and it's, it's Mark. That the gospel is Mark is often called the memoirs of Peter. Where did Mark get his information? He got his information. We believe he got it from the apostle Peter. In fact, one of the early church fathers, by the, a man by the name of uh, Pap Papias of Hierapolis, 
He lived between 60 AD and 130 AD. He said this, he said, the elder with a capital E, that refers to John, not John the Baptist's inner story, but John, the one who writes um, the gospel of John, first, second, third John, and Revelation, that John, he's referred to in church history, capital E, the elder, the pastor. He's the main guy, the, the apostle, John. He said this, John used to say this, that Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote accurately all that he remembered, not indeed in order of all the things said and done by the Lord. Now, why is that important? Like that, all of that that I just told you, why is that important? Here's why that's important. Because there's jokers on TikTok that will tell you that the Bible and the gospel accounts were written hundreds of years after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And when they say that, they're just making junk up. They say that because that gets clicks and that gets feeds. And that's what a liberal church maybe somewhere told them. But it is not true and it is not an incongruence with what church history says. How do we know Mark? Where, how does he know all of these things? How was he writing these things? He's writing them because Peter, as an eyewitness, has saw them. He's witnessed them, and then he's told them. Now, certainly there's the function of the Spirit and the interpretation and the inspiration, I'm sorry, of the Spirit at work here. But even practically, we can see it being tied to a person who spent time with Jesus, um, none other than the person of Peter. All of the early church fathers, Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, Clement of Alexandria, Eusebius, Tertullian, they all attribute the gospel of Mark to John Mark, who was the apostle Peter's right-hand man. And most likely Mark wrote this while he was with Peter in the city of Rome right around the late 1950s to mid-60s. That's when it was written. Now, let's get cracking to the text. It begins, notice, with the beginning, and beginnings matter. He begins with simply this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the, the Son of God. And like I said, this is the entire summary of the book in just a couple of words. What's the gospel of Mark about? What's about this? It's about the beginning of the gospel. And what is the beginning of that gospel? The beginning of the gospel is simply this, that Jesus is the Christ and he is the Son of God. Now, what he's saying is, let me tell you how all of this gospel got started. Now, the way that he's using gospel here in verse number one is different than the way the gospel is used whenever we say the gospel of Mark. When we say the gospel of Mark, we're referring to the entire book of, uh, of Mark, and we're meaning here a book, a letter, something that he's writing. But here, as uh, Mark uses it, when he says the beginning of the, of the gospel, that the word gospel there is used in a very particular way throughout the New Testament. So other than Gospel of uh, Matthew, Gospel of Mark, Gospel of Luke, Gospel of John, in all the other places where you read the gospel, it's referring to, to a certain practice, to a certain practice in ancient history that you and I, we uh, really no longer have. Um, the practice would be as any time that within the kingdom, there would be um, a newsworthy event right? In particular, good news to be told. In fact, that's what the word gospel means. It means simply this, good news or glad tidings. And so 
within a kingdom, anytime that good news was to happen, they would want to spread the news, like go and tell the message, go and give this message. And so they didn't have email and they didn't have fax machines. They didn't have telephones. They didn't have newspaper. They didn't have print. So how would they would do it is they would dispatch, dispatch messengers who would travel all throughout the kingdom to go and to spread this good news. And so let's say that well, a victory had been won and they'd taken over new land. And so they're like, hey, we're gonna have this celebration, but people out in the county, people way out, they're not gonna know this news. And so let's go and let's spread this news. And so a messenger would go out or the king had a baby. Let's spread that good news, that good tidings of the, that message out. And so that's what messengers would, these messengers would do. They would go to these cities and they would, hear ye, hear ye, right? We can do that loudly in here. I've done that before. I've got good news, good, good, glad tidings to share with you. I've got a gospel to give you. And what is that gospel? Well, the king has a baby. Way! We've conquered this land. Way! And everybody would cheer. And what Mark is saying is, I've got good news to proclaim. And I'm sending out royal news to go out. What is that good news? Well, that's simply this, that Jesus is the Christ and he is the son of God. I've got new good news to proclaim. And so every message, every gospel, it needs a, a messenger. And so that becomes the, the focus of these first um, couple of verses in the, in the gospel of Mark. He's gonna focus in on the messenger, a particular messenger, a man by the name of John the Baptist. Now again, John the Baptist is different than the other John in the Bible that I talked about, the elder, the pastor, the one who writes the gospel of John and writes first and second and third John and writes um, Revelation. That's the apostle John. This guy and is, is different. He's John the Baptist. And so let me give you in our remaining time that, that I've got brand new time. I forgot to set my timer. I did, so I got like, 40 minutes, that's all, I mean, this, that other time doesn't even count. And so it's just like a gift from the Lord. So with our remaining time of 40 minutes, started with 42, I've talked for 15, I've still got 40. That's a gift from the Lord, he stopped time again. Um, let me give you four truths about John the Baptist. Four truths, number one, we're gonna take all of this from that text and so leave your Bibles out. Number one, John was the messenger. Now, again, I said every message needs a messenger, but this isn't normal message that's being coming out. This isn't a normal message that's been given. This is a, a anticipated message coming from an anticipated prophetic messenger. That's who John the Baptist is. He's the anticipated messenger. That John begins, I mean, Mark, I'm sorry, begins his gospel in a very different place than some of the other gospel writers do. Again, some of the other gospel writers, they begin theirs with genealogy of Jesus in Bethlehem and all of these other places. But look at where Mark begins his gospel. He begins it, he roots it in the Old Testament. He wants them to see that what's happening here is rooted, its roots find its way in in prophecy, in the Old Testament, that this, what's happening here is a continuation. It's not something new, like we go Old Testament, okay, now there's a New Testament. But what Mark wants people to see is this is a continuation of the old. He's continuing it. He's continuing to tell the story. God's continuing to work. Now, again, there's been 400 years of silence. 400, 400 years, that's a long time. 
before the United States of America was founded, right? Way before that, 400 years of prophetic silence. And now all of a sudden, a new messenger is on the scene. This man by the name of John the Baptist. The Baptist is what he does. John is his name. And notice where Mark begins. He begins with this prophecy, with a prophetic word. He actually quotes two passages, two different prophets in two different passages. They're both ascribed by Mark to Isaiah because Isaiah would have been the one who would have been most known. He was the, the, a writing prophet who wrote the most, was the prophet Isaiah. But actually he begins off by quoting Malachi and then after Malachi, he quotes Isaiah. Notice with me, if you will, at verse number two. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger. Now, my messenger is Malachi. Like, like the prophet Malachi, that word in Hebrew simply means my messenger. And so he's, he's attributing it there, a tip of the hat to Malachi, because this is coming from Malachi. Behold, I send Malachi. I send my messenger. I'm sending another Malachi. Another messenger is what he's saying. Before your face, who will, he says, prepare your way. And so in Malachi, for us, that's the last Old Testament book. Like if you turn past Matthew and went back um, into the Old Testament, you would find Malachi as the first book you would come to working your way backwards. And in Malachi, what happens in Malachi is the Israelites have a beef with God. Like they have been suffering for a long time. They've been exiled. They watched Jerusalem be ransacked. We talked a little bit about this when we talked about Second Chronicles. They've been exiled. They've been carted off, even though they've been given permission to come back. Things are just in a deplorable state. They've been under one horrible kingdom after another, just one after another, after another, after another, after another have been taken over. And the people are just kind of fed up and they're angry. And so they go to God in a lament, we've been talking about that, in a prayer. And they say this in Malachi 2.17, they say, you have wearied the Lord with your words. And this is God's response, I'm sorry, this is God's response to, to their anger and to their frustration and to their prayers. He says, through the prophet Malachi, he says, you have wearied the Lord, Yahweh, with your words. You say then, how have we wearied you, God? And he says, you've wearied me by, by these accusations you bring against me. You say that everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. Like, have you ever felt like that? Like why, I mean, it's all throughout the Psalms. Why do the wicked prosper? Why am I languishing behind? Why am I living in, in poverty? Why am I scraping to make ends meet? And you've got these people over here that don't serve you, that are doing whatever they wanna do and they're prospering. That's the thing that's bothering them. They're saying, Lord, we've come to you, we prayed. It, it appears that the people who do evil, they're actually doing, they're, they're prospering, they're doing good. And it looks like you delight in them. And he goes on to say, you ask, where is the God of justice? There's their question, where is the God of justice? And so there's this accusation of injustice on the part of God, or at least they're asking like, where is God, the God of justice? Is he around? Where might I, uh, I find the God of justice? And then Malachi 3 comes in with the Lord's response. Behold, I'll send from Mark 1, right? Same place as where he's quoting it from. Behold, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, Lord whom you seek, he will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And so he's saying there's a messenger that's going to come 
And he's, what's his job that he's going to do? He's going to prepare the way of the Lord. He's going to make that straight. Where is the God of justice? Malachi said he's coming. He's going to come. But before he comes, I'm going to send a messenger before him. In fact, if we go on and reading in Malachi chapter 4 when we get there, he'll say this. He'll say, behold, I will send Elijah the prophet. So it's like this, this prophecy that Elijah's coming back or one who will be like Elijah or have a ministry like Elijah. He's the one who is to come, this Elijah type person. Hold on to that. Verse number back into Mark chapter one, verse three, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And so this is a quotation from um, the prophet Isaiah. This comes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse three. It's a, it's a passage just quoted in all four gospel accounts that all four of the gospel writers see the importance of this prophecy found in Isaiah chapter 40. So this messenger is coming. I mean, imagine if, uh, if you would, if we were told like there was somebody like super really, 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 really important that's gonna come and they're gonna come in next week here to the Point Community Church. Like, I don't even know who that is. I'm trying to think, I've been trying to think of people and I'm like, well, I don't want to say a political person because you'll be like, or you'd be like, ah, you know, whatever, yay or nay. Or, and so let's just say there's a really, 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 really important, famous, powerful, heroic person like Joe Burrow. That's one we can all agree on, hopefully. He's going to show up next week. Guess what I'm going to be doing all this coming up week? I'm gonna be dusting and I'm gonna be cleaning and I'm gonna be taking care of things and I'm gonna be like, man, we gotta take care of this and we gotta get this and we gotta, we gotta make preparation for this person who is coming. And the same thing would happen as the messengers would go out to bring the message. Sometimes their message would be, the king is coming to your village, prepare the way. Like again, we're, they're not roads, right? They're not potholes. Like it was worse than Home Street was before they fixed it, right? There's like a, hey, we need, well, what do we need to do? We need to level out these places. We need to prepare the way. We need to take the path straight. We need to roll out the red carpet. The king is coming. And that's what Isaiah is saying. The king, Yahweh himself is coming. He's coming to you. He's coming to your village. He's coming back to this earth. Prepare the way. Make the path straight. Roll out the red carpet. Get ready to welcome your king and your God to come back. That's what John the Baptist's role is here. That's what he's saying to them. Both Malachi and Isaiah are proclaiming the same thing, that Yahweh is coming to your town. Prepare the way. Now there's this uh, verse number six in Mark's chapter one, verse six. It seems a little peculiar. You go, what is that about, right? It, it talks about, you see it there where it talks about, uh, it talks about John the Baptist's attire and his diet. I mean, you think like, what does that have to do with well, it? Well, like, it could be like this. What if I said to you that today, Superman is gonna show up and he's gonna give you $10 million. Well, you'd say, Andy, you're crazy. But no, what is it? no, 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 believe me, trust me, listen to me. Have I ever lied to you? No, I'm telling you the truth. Today, Superman himself is gonna show up and he's gonna give you $10 million. What are you doing the rest of the day? You're looking for a dude with a red cape and a big S on his chest, aren't you? Why? Because the attire, the uniform 
indicates the person. And you're really not even about that person. You're really about that $10 million. You're like, that guy's got a cape and an ass on his shirt. That's Superman. Where's my money, right? I heard, pay up, sucker. You know, that's the way you're gonna be. The same thing is happening here. The prophecy, remember what I said in Malachi chapter four that came out was there was one like Elijah that's going to come. Listen, in 2 Kings um, chapter one, verse eight, they, they, it's this text, it says, they answered him and they said, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said to them, it is Elijah, the Tishbite. Again, Elijah, an Old Testament prophet probably the most famous Old Testament prophet, the one who spoke the most after Moses, but Moses gives the law and then Elijah is the one who brings a lot of prophecies, a spoken prophet. Isaiah is the one who writes the most as a prophet, but Elijah, very important. And remember, John the Baptist is coming like him. And what he's saying is, it's him. How do we know it's him? Well, in the same way you'd know the dude with the red cape and the S on his chest is Superman. You know this, this is the uniform that Elijah wore. And John the Baptist is wearing it. It is God's way of letting the people know that the messenger has come. He is Elijah-like. He, he is a voice in the wilderness. And ultimately, he's, what's he proclaiming? Prepare the way. The king is coming. Number one, John was the messenger. Number two, John was a Bible-preaching, truth-telling baptizer. That's who John was. Look at verse number four. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now notice here, he's, he's baptizing folks. Now for us that grew up in church, like the, the ordinance of baptism doesn't seem all that odd. I mean, most of us, if we grew up in church, you probably saw folks being baptized. I mean, we have a baptistry and by, from time to time, by God's grace, we get to baptize folks. It's been a minute. Looking forward to the next time we get to do that. But we've kind of grown accustomed to this ordinance of baptism. But in the Jewish world, like baptism would have been really kind of foreign to them. This ordinance wasn't really something that was practiced a lot. I mean, we really don't completely know where John got it from. I mean, certainly within Judaism, there was a lot of ritualistic cleansing that would take place. Like before they eat, they had to wash their hands a certain numbers of times in certain ways. And there were other, um, there were other things that they would do within the temple that would require certain ritualistic cleansings. The other thing, it seems as if there's some stories during this time that any time a Gentile, so a non-Jew, would want to convert to Judaism, that the Jews would force them to be cleansed by baptism. So maybe he's picking up on that. We don't really know, but we do know this, what John is using it for. That John is teaching baptism because baptism signified cleansing. It indicated a new start. It indicated a change of direction. That baptism was a visible outward sign in the same way that we practice baptism. It's a visible outward sign that someone identifies with the message of, of John the Baptist. That's what baptism is in this time, in this, in, when Mark's writing this or telling this story. It would have been a visible sign that someone identified with the message of John. And what was that message? It was the message of repentance. It was the message of repentance. It goes hand in hand, right, with prepare the way. How do you prepare the way? Through repentance. And in fact, John the Baptist, as you read about him in the other gospel accounts, John the Baptist had one message and that message was the message of repentance. 
If we would have invited John the Baptist to preach this morning, John the Baptist would have said, take out your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter one. The title of my sermon this morning is Repent for the Kingdom of God is Coming. And if we'd have invited him back tonight, he may have said, hey, take out your Bibles and turn with me to Amos. I got a message for you. Here's my message, repent. And next week, my message is repent. That was his primary message and it is the primary message of the kingdom. In fact, we notice it here, John the Baptist, what is his message? It's the message of repentance. In Mark chapter one, verses 14 and 15, we'll get to Jesus who is a preacher who will preach and teach. What is Jesus's message? Well, it's summarized in this. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. What should we do? Repent. Repent and believe the good news. Believe the gospel. That's Jesus's message. It was the message of Peter in Acts chapter two in the age of the church. The first sermon after Jesus's resurrection and ascension that will be preached is on the day of Pentecost. Peter, full of the spirit, will get up and proclaim the gospel to all of the Jews gathered there. And they'll reply, what must we do to be saved? And this is what Peter will say in Acts chapter two, verses 38 and 39. Repent every one of you and be ye baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. The same message, repent and believe and experience forgiveness and you will receive, he even says, the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 3, 19, Peter will preach a second time, a second sermon after he heals a lame man and everybody's clamoring and talking about this. How did you do this? He'll proclaim the gospel to them. And then he'll say this, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. I say this all the time, but I will say it again. That's one of my favorite verses in the entire book, of, in the entire Bible. Times of refreshing may come. Where does it come? It comes from the presence of the Lord. And how do we make a way? How do we welcome in the presence of the Lord? Through repentance, he says. Through repenting and turning back and experiencing forgiveness. I mean, in all of those places that I just named, what's the common thread that they have going through them? Remember, I quoted Mark and then I recorded two sermons um, from the book of Acts where Peter is the preacher in both of them. The common thread is Peter. It's the apostle Peter. But it wouldn't be, if you know Peter's life, it wouldn't probably, it shouldn't be surprising to you that repentance would be an emphasis of Peter's life. Remember Peter? Peter spent three years with Jesus. He watches Jesus do all of these miracles that, that Mark is going to record for us supernaturally, sovereignly, deliver to us all of these stories and all of these things that Peter saw as an eyewitness. I mean, faith is hard, is it not? I mean, let's just be honest. Sometimes it's, it's hard, but sometimes we'll say, you know what, if I could just see a bona fide miracle, then I would believe. If I could just see something that really, truly, that was, you know, not explainable by, by science or by anything, if I, could just, if I could manifest a miracle or see God work a miracle, then I would believe. But that's so untrue because ultimately faith is a matter of the heart and belief. And we see this in Peter's life because Peter will see miracle after miracle after miracle, but then when things get super tough, 
When he's called to put his, his, his life on the line, what does Peter do? He shrinks back and he denies Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. And not even with a gun to his head. One time he'll deny to a little girl that he's a part of Jesus. And then Jesus, you know, dies and Peter filled with remorse. He's absolutely filled with remorse. Peter says, I'm going fishing. Now he's not saying I'm going fishing like you and I might say, hey, I'm going fishing. I've had enough of this. I needed a day off. I'm going to go fishing. What he's saying is I'm going back to the life I had before I met this man, Jesus. That's what Peter was by trade. He was a fisherman. I had enough of this discipleship stuff, following this Jesus around. I'm going back to a life that I knew and life that I had, making money, doing whatever I could do to to make ends meet. I'm done with this. And then what happens? A post-resurrected Jesus comes looking for Peter, standing on the seashore, calling out to Peter. And when Peter sees Jesus, he jumps out of the boat and swims to Jesus. And then Jesus reinstates Peter and Peter reinstates his love for Jesus. And then Jesus sends Peter out on his mission. And then Peter will live as the rest of his life and even give his life for the gospel, for the sake of Jesus, for everything. It is no, it is no accident that Peter would emphasize repentance here because Peter had been the recipient of Jesus' forgiveness found at Peter's repentance. Repentance is the message of Peter because repentance and forgiveness of sin is what Peter wants everyone to experience. He wants us to experience the forgiveness for our sins that comes through our repentance, the roadway that ushers in God's presence and God's forgiveness for our lives, for our sins, that ushers in times of refreshing is repentance. The repentance is turning from something and turning towards something. It's turning from sin and idolatry and grumbling and disobedience and turning to Jesus for forgiveness. Repentance is being honest about where we are. It's no longer hiding in the shadows. It's no longer hiding in our sins, but it's coming out and coming clean. Like that's the language we use, right? We say there's this, there's this ordinance of baptism that John's implementing, but what does it mean? It means to be made clean. That's the picture. Like it's in the same way, like maybe while you were, like have you ever been on vacation for a little period of time or maybe you did it, you know, like school teachers not wanting to out you. Maybe you did it during this time where you just like forget what day it is and you wake up one day and you're like, you know what? I think it's been a couple of days since I've taken a shower. Like you ever done that? Just like, oh, what do you say? I, I feel gross. I feel gross. I gotta get in there and take a shower. And listen, sin, sin brings guilt. Guilt brings shame and it makes us feel dirty. It makes us feel gross. And repentance is how we become clean. We come clean as we repent. Now, baptism is a once and for all sign of your repentance, your initial repentance. But as Luther said that when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be that of repentance that we're constantly repenting, we're constantly turning, we're constantly taking our gaze off of this world and off of the things of this world and off of our sins and off of our way and we're constantly turning them towards Jesus and towards his way. Number three, John was used mightily by God. Then in his day, John the Baptist was a big deal. 
Notice in verse number five, and all the country of Judea and Jerusalem, they were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So Judea is the region. Jerusalem is the city, the capital city. So Franklin County would be the region and Frankfurt, we would say, could be um, the city. And notice everybody's coming out to hear John and to be baptized by him. That's a sign that this is a a true movement of God. It cuts across um, the spectrum. It cuts across lines, not just young folk, not just city folk, not just educated folk, but all folks, they're all coming. Now, certainly not every single human being is coming, but all, it would mean there's majority of them are coming. They're all coming out to be baptized by John. In fact, there's a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus and He died around um, the end of the first century, around 100 AD. And he devoted, listen, in his books, in his writing, he devotes more space to John the Baptist than he does to Jesus. Now, he wasn't a Christian, but still, even in that, John the Baptist made a bigger splash. He was a bigger deal than maybe even Jesus was, especially to the Jewish people and the Jewish culture. John the Baptist was a big deal. Everyone knew about him from Bald Knob to Washington, D.C. They all knew about him. He was an influencer. He disrupted the system. He'll be executed and martyred, arrested and then martyred. We saw that in, um, earlier in John chapter one. I mean, in Mark chapter one. And he'll be executed and martyred by the king, Herod himself. Why? Because he called out sin. John the Baptist was used mightily by God, but that sets up the last point. Point number four, and yet John was a nobody. John the Baptist was a nobody. If you don't believe me, ask him. He would tell you, and it's here in the text. He was a nobody, at least compared to the somebody who was coming, the somebody that he was pointing to. Look at verse number seven and and eight, and he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Verse number eight, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That John is describing in verse number seven, a particular thing here. He's saying, I'm not worthy to untie um, the one who is coming, referring to Jesus. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. You go, why would you on earth want to untie somebody's sandals? Well, that would have been the job of a, of a slave to do. Again, in this time, roads were terrible. They're dirt, they're covered. There would have been all kinds of things in the road left by animals that they would have stepped in and walked in. And whenever you entered into someone's home or into a finer establishment, you would sit down and then a slave, a servant would come. And they would stoop down and they would untie, they would unlatch your sandals they would remove them. They would have a basin of water and a, and a, and a pitcher of water. They pour water and then they would wash your feet, wash your sandals off, and then they would dry them with a towel and then they would place them back on. It would have been a lowly job, a dirty job. Again, a, a job for slaves, for servants, for Gentiles, like cleaning a toilet. It would have been gross, humbling work. What if I had come to you this morning and said, hey, we got a bunch of visitors coming this morning. Somebody's made a huge mess in one of the commodes upstairs. Could you go and clean it? One way like John the Baptist you could have got out of it is you could have said, I'm not worthy to clean that toilet. 
Like we usually think like I'm too worthy to clean that toilet. But look at what John the Baptist is saying. I'm not even worthy. But Pastor Andy, I'm not even worthy to clean the toilets in this place. I'd have been like, oh, no, you are. <laughs> Trust me. Believe the gospel and go clean that toilet. You are worthy. But that's what John is saying. I am not worthy. Later on, um, I think it's John the revelator, the apostle who records where Jesus, I mean, where John the Baptist says that um, I must decrease so that he may increase. It's not just a low view of self. It's not that just John the Baptist needed some self-esteem messages, but what John the Baptist is saying compared to Jesus, I'm nothing. I'm not even worthy to untie this man's shoes, to wash his feet, to take care of him. That's who he is. John the Baptist was a big deal with a big platform with a lot of followers and a lot of influence, but he recognized his role and his role was to point to Jesus. I could have made it number five. John was a a pointer. That's who he is. He wasn't the point. Christ was the point. And you and I as the Point Community Church, we're not the point. We're not the point. January 22nd, We will celebrate 18 years as a church. Why did we name the Point Community Church? The Point Community Church, it's not because we're the point. It's because we recognize our role as Jesus's church is to point to him. He is the point. He is what it's all about. We are not the point. You and I, we are only pointers pointing to Jesus. But listen to me, I want everything that we say and everything we do as a church to point to him. That's why we're here. Not to make much about ourselves or our music or our style or our building or our things or anything, but what we want most of all for folks here is we want to point to Christ and to his beauty and to his glory and to the way that he works. I want our welcome and our hospitality to point to Christ. Because that's what the Apostle Paul instructs us in Romans chapter 15. He says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. That we as the point, we have an opportunity and how we welcome one another with a sense of enthusiasm and curiosity with one another and making this welcome to, to point to the welcome of Christ. I want the way that we love each other and the way that we serve each other. I want the way that we have real relational investment in the lives of others to point to Jesus in that. I want us to care and to serve and to show compassion, real compassion, real service, real care to one another. Why? Because that's the way Jesus has treated us. Jesus has reached out to us with real care. That in fact, John will write that we are to love because he first loved us. Jesus will say to his disciples in this, that they will know that you're my disciples. In this, you can point to me in the way that you love one another. And we want to love like that. Our worship, it points to him. What are we saying as we come together and we're worshiping? We're saying the same thing that that John the Baptist says here. He is worthy. He is worthy. We are not. We're in humility, but he is worthy. I want our generosity to point to him. I want our everything as the Point Community Church to point to him. Now, there are many ways that John the Baptist could have said, like, here's here's a way that, that Jesus is greater than me, but he points to one. 
Verse number eight, he says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. There's a contrast there. This is what I have done, and this is what he will do. This is one way that he is more significant, more powerful than me and his work is more important than me is that I've just baptized you with water, but the one who is coming, Jesus will baptize you with the spirit. What's the difference between water and the spirit? Well, water is external, this baptism, but the work of the spirit is internal. And it's what empowers us to love. It's what empowers our mission. It's what empowers us to do all the things that we are doing. It's what humbles us as the work of the spirit working on the inside of us. Water is a symbol of cleansing, but it's only the spirit who can make you truly clean. Water can touch and wash your skin, but the spirit can touch and wash your heart. Water is a sign of washing, but it pointed to a precious promise, the promise of God's very presence in our hearts, making us new. Jesus is the beginning of the gospel, the good news. And the good news is this, that Jesus has come. Not the pointer, but the point. Not just the messenger, but the message. Not just the voice, but the person. And that is the story of Mark. That's where he began. It's the greatest story ever told. You and I are getting ready to get on into the greatest story, the best news that you will ever hear. More important than any headline, more important than any playoff game. It's the story that has literally changed the world and it can change you. May we encounter it anew and afresh this year in 2024. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that just as Jesus, we see him going after someone who's running from Jesus in the person of Peter, that you come after us. Thank you, God, that in your great grace, you have sent Jesus and he's come and he's come for us. He's come for sinners. He's come from those on the outside that will come and humble themselves and repent and fall at his feet. Jesus, as we sing, may we remind ourselves that we are not worthy, but you use us. And may we point to the worthiness of you. May you be glorified in this time together, Lord. I pray for us. I pray, Lord, sometimes we get so busy and we got places to go. I pray that we would sit and we would do business with you. I pray that as we approach this table, that we will do it humbly, rightly, reverently. We'll do it, Lord, remembering the gospel. It won't just be another thing and a list of things that we got to do today, but we'll spend real time here. We'll open up, we'll prepare our hearts. We'll use that, we'll, we'll use the bulldozer of repentance to prepare you from, to prepare a way for you to come. Lord, I pray that, um, that we would be humble before you, like John the Baptist. In your name we pray, amen.